Edward Rose, one of the trappers along for the journey, ran up screaming that a trapper had been murdered in the village. And indeed, one man was missing, and the Ashley party uh, had to make a crucial choice. So are you telling me, are you telling me that this was in fact the worst trade deal in the history of trade deals? Maybe ever, yes. Maybe uh, ever? <laughs> I actually wrote that joke in later. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Howdy, howdy. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're gonna try anyway. So, George, who do we have this week? Well, this week on We Talk About Dead People, I think that's that's the name of the podcast, isn't it? It's been so long that I've forgotten. <laughs> Shut um, up. But I think we'll be covering the legendary trapper, pirate, and bear attack victim, Hugh Glass. Ah, yes. Thank you. I'd forgotten. You wrote the damn episode. Well, I've had the worst case of writer's block ever this year. Uh, I barely have the stamina to write out a shopping list right now. Look, that is no excuse. If Hugh Glass could drag his broken ass across 200 miles <laughs> of South Dakota brush after fighting a bear, you can beat your little writer's block problem. Well, first of all, it was not 200 miles. It was closer to 300 miles. And I'll have you know, I am not a man of the frontier. I'm a millennial soy boy posing as a big-brained history podcaster. And I work nights. I barely see the sun anymore now that winter's closing in. Absolutely pathetic. You really should think about growing up. It might help your writer's block. <laughs> I guess the best way to do it is to research a true wilderness legend and try to learn what it is to be a real man. All I need now is my Snorlax body pillow, Captain Marvel baseball cap, and Zoloft quick release, and I'll be good to go. Just like the pioneers. Well, anyway, um, <laughs> all that's down in the history lab and so much more, so I think we better head that direction. Can't wait. Let's go. Here, we'll take my segue. Not Leonardo DiCaprio, a bear, some pirates, and a world of betrayal. This is the story of Hugh Glass, frontiersman, trapper, and mean son of a bitch. Herein lies the tale of Hugh Glass, the man who was mauled by a bear, left for dead, and somehow came back angry about it. So, George, if you were to choose a primitive weapon for a fight with a grizzly bear, what would you choose, and how would you use it? Uh, how primitive does it have to be? As primitive as you like. Well, I, I was thinking sort of more the, the other end of the spectrum of, um, how not primitive can it be and still qualify? Um, pick any weapon you want, I don't care. <laughs> Oh, cool. Um, <laughs> well, I was going to say that, uh, obviously, keeping out of the grizzly bear's reach is probably very important. So, 
if we're going to go full on primitive, but still be able to do that, I mean, a sling. If a sling could take down Goliath in the sacred scriptures, surely it could take down a bear. But if ranged weapons are out, then something really, really long and, uh, I don't know, maybe with like, maybe some sort of long ass pitchfork. Because bears are pretty protective of their face, so if I can just keep it at pitchfork length um, so it can't close with me, eventually it may have to go return some videotapes or something and leave me alone. <laughs> 30-foot pitchfork. That's that's my plan. And what about you? What uh, what primitive weapon would you choose, Aaron? Uh, I was... Okay. Uh, I was going to make a really, really terrible joke, but I, I pledged that I wouldn't. I told... I told... Uh, my dear mother, that I wouldn't make a single political joke on this episode, so I won't. <laughs> <laughs> if I were to use a primitive weapon to fight off a grizzly bear, uh, I, I think, well, I did have a question about yours first. When you say sling, are you talking like the old-fashioned Davy and Goliath sling, like you swing it around and your wrist spins, or are you talking like that rubber tube and a no, uh, no, no, you don't, stick? You don't get the velocity with the, with the rubber tube. No, you need, nice. you need, you need the full, full leather Thracian sling. The Thracian sling. Yes, they're right. Yep. <laughs> well, now that I've stalled enough, I would have to say I would go for a set of like bear claw gloves, like those death claw gloves you get in Fallout that are super, super deadly. If I'm going to fight a grizzly bear, I want it to be a fair fight. I'm not going to use some gun. Come on. I'm facing down a grizzly bear. I'm a, I'm a match for that. Just give me the claws. If I can't win with with the claws against the claws, then I don't deserve to be called a man. I don't know. I'm already a millennial, so I'm, I think I'm doomed to never be a man. Yeah, that sounds like a sounds like an absolutely terrible choice, but um we can we can leave that aside for now. Um yep, yep. cuz I'm pretty sure you don't have the grip strength of a grizzly bear, so <laughs> even if you have grizzly bear hands, I'm pretty sure he's going to win. Like this is the odds aren't great. The odds aren't great. It's Look, I read, like, several wiki-how tutorials on how to beat a grizzly bear because after writing this episode, I got so paranoid that I was like, if I ever get attacked by a grizzly bear, I want to be ready. No, and I mean, all you know of them said to you, act, act dead until you're actually dead. Well, you know the line, right? the, the, the rhyme, right? What? About bears? It, for um, how you deal with different bears. If it's black, fight back. If it's brown, lie down. If it's white, good night. Because because uh, <laughs> polar bears are actually the most dangerous bears to fight. They just but they're don't... so fluffy. And you know and how Reddit they were... told me they have blue skin. <laughs> you know how they remain so fluffy and beautiful by killing people who interfere with their lifestyle. That's how. Wow. Well, I don't know if there's a lesson there. Uh, but either way, computer, please bring up, not the polar bears, for the love of God, but please bring up Hugh Glass. There we go. All right, George. Now, it looks like the computer brought up much, well, it brought up a much more complex image than usual. If you would, please describe the scene pictured below. Okay, well, there's, there's a lot going on, I've got to say. So... I'm I'm guessing Hugh Glass is the one without fur. I'm assuming. Well, everybody has fur in this picture. Well, the one with okay, the one with clothes is Hugh Glass, right? Oh yeah, yeah. For okay, sure. so yeah, he we've got a dude, um, big beard, big bushy beard, 
Uh, got sort of a medium-brimmed hat. It's it's definitely definitely bigger than a fedora, but not quite into cowboy hat range. He's got a carbine of some kind over his shoulder and a, a big double-edged knife in his hands, but he appears to have been ambushed or caught unawares by this bear because he looks like he was just looking at something on the ground and this bear is coming up behind him just with his, his arms absolutely spread out and just about to absolutely start wailing on this dude and the dude is looking over his shoulder like a, like a kid who just got caught in computer lab playing like Thing Thing Arena or something in 2005 <laughs> when he was supposed to be doing math in school and he's like oh shit I, I've been caught and the bear is just right behind him like a teacher just about to tell him to log off um, but then you know player three and four have entered the game as well there's these two dogs one of which uh, appears to be biting the bear's shoulder as the bear reaches out for the dude and the other of which has apparently decided that discretion is the better part of valor and is like mm, <laughs> I think I'm going to sit this one out and is just kind of off uh. on the side but the yep. bear the bear looks quite angry I will say that as well like that looks like a man who just went to get a granola bar and found that his roommates left the empty box of granola bars when they took the last one yeah, that's pretty much exactly what happens later in the story. But I think my favorite thing about this picture is how terrified everybody looks. Like, Hugh looks terrified, the bear looks terrified, the dogs all look terrified. Like, you can see the whites of every creature's eye, eyes in this picture. Um, but yeah, I think this is, this is one of my favorites. But I can't believe I didn't include the best picture of Hugh Glass. Um, let me just pull this up for you. This is, this is worth seeing, because I want you to react to this one as well. Uh, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Aha! Here it is. You know me, I'm always, always happy to, to react to things, just a regular old reactionary. Alright, there you go. <laughs> there you go, it's on the next page. What the hell is that? Um, that is a monument. <laughs> So, we've got a sculpture here, which apparently is made out of uh, scrap metal, I think, of Hugh Glass looking... I think he's a, I think he's in the middle of being knocked down, but it looks like he's just drop-kicked the bear as the bear <laughs> is lunging towards him. And because it's all made out of scrap metal, the bear looks a little bit skeletal, so it kind of looks like a zombie bear. Like, its eye sockets look way too big, and... He's just Hugh is either flying backwards or is in the middle of a drop kick on the bear as the like mecha rust bear lunges towards him. It's it it's really quite disturbing to be honest. Yeah, I thought this sculpture was uh, a little much. I won't lie, <laughs> but uh, it's pretty legendary at the same time. I think my favorite thing is that they're both supported by trees, like metal trees. It's it's interesting. But yes, I, I thought I thought it would be good to include this picture because it does look like he's drop kicking the bear, which is the opposite of what happens. So <laughs> the bear drop kicked it him. Came as we'll out. Come okay. To find out. okay, I was gonna I was gonna ask. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> it turns out that Hugh Glass actually viciously attacks a bear, and the bear travels hundreds of miles to get revenge. Yes. <laughs> If I'm to be saved from my inevitable millennial soydom, we're going to need to get an infusion of raw masculinity right off the bat with this story. Um, Don't you need a prescription the, for that? Yes, 
Or no, you could just listen to We Talk About Dead People, and before you know it, you will have a beard. I don't care if you're a woman or not. I remember one of of the proudest moments of my life was when uh, I was at a doctor's appointment, and the doctor was making, I don't remember how this topic of like controlled substance prescriptions came up, but the doctor was making some joke about how the only prescript, the only controlled substance that she prescribes in her office with the stuff she deals with is testosterone. It didn't look like I needed any, so proudest moment of my <laughs> life. Well, congratulations. <laughs> you are a true man. Now, I know all this masculinity is going to upset some listeners, uh, but if we're going to survive the coming horrors that appear to be on the docket for Western civilization... Was that a political going reference? To ha- no, it wasn't. It wasn't at all. It's just, a, it's just a prediction. We're going to have to put aside some of our modern proclivities and tap into our more primitive modes of being. So to start, I thought we'd begin with a little context. Excellent choice. Mm. Our story takes place beginning at the end of the 18th century and rolls right over into the 19th century between 1783 and into the 1830s. This is a time in American history that is fraught with danger, peril, and lots of cold winters. And Andrew Jackson. And that. Well, I mean, he is dangerous, perilous, and he does bring the winter, so there you go. America was a new country, and even though we proved in our Daniel Shays episode that America doesn't actually exist, we're going to ignore that for the time being and just go with the meme. Yes, America was being settled. Many territories and stretches of wilderness were uncolonized, undeveloped, and basically unharassed Minecraft biome. Except, just as in Minecraft, there were traders working along the rivers and amidst the mountains, largely dealing in furs, as opposed to emeralds for all you Minecraft experts out there. I've never played Minecraft. I actually don't understand how the game works or what you do. And at this point, like, I feel like I can't, I can't even, I can't rectify that. Like, it's it's too much time has passed by. I just have to sort of nod and smile at Minecraft memes. Yeah, um, if you missed the boat in 2000, was it 2010 or something like that? If you were that late? You're you're way behind, but um, this is basically Minecraft is is primitive America, early America, or early colonial America. Let's put it that way. So anyway, I mentioned traders, um, and traders are a relatively recent addition to Minecraft, and we're a relatively recent addition to North America, which is a complete lie, but just go with it. These traders were largely of French and British origin, go figure. And at the time, fur trading was an excellent way to make money if you were the actual trader. If you were the actual worker gathering the furs, it was obviously dangerous and largely thankless work because you were on the raw American frontier amidst all kinds of great petals. Like bears. Like bears, but there's there's many, many more things you have to worry about than just bears. Bears are like, you run into one every now and then, and most of the time you just tip your hat and say good day to you, but sometimes you can piss them off, and that's just kind of the story of America, and now Australia. So, But it's not bears down there, it's more like giant jackrabbits that have merged with Mothman or something weird. I don't know what the hell's going on down there. But anyway... The developing economic situation in North America had many low-born people basically looking for work wherever they could find it, which is nothing new. But again, it is also a frontier situation, which is different from, you know, 
well, America doesn't have as long a a uh, history, you might say, or a written history, recorded history, whatever, as say a place like Europe. Um, so this was it was the New World. Um, so there was little established infrastructure, which meant being a working man wasn't as simple as just going to the factory, shaking the man's hand, looking him in the eye with a smile, and applying for the job. Things worked on a more local level for the most part, and jobs were obviously mostly manual labor. The cushy corporate life that many millennials or other such workers live today was considered more prestigious, and uh, having a desk job or some other such silly thing like that was as often associated with high status. How far we have fallen. <laughs> Here, uh, can you mark this? I need to run to get something from the other room. Uh, how dare you? All right. Oh. I'm back. Yeah, it sounded like you were Wario shuffling back to your mic, so I figured something was wrong. Well, I'm, I'm wearing big slippers. So the situation for the majority of workers did not involve segways in the office hallways or nerf fights amongst the cubicles or beer carts rolling around Friday afternoons for compliance training sessions. For most people, simply earning enough to eat while performing backbreaking work 15 hours a day for the company was hard enough. And if you didn't want to be a company drone, you did the work that needed doing for the locals. This included mining, smithing, farming, and other basic yet highly essential labor. People made themselves useful in what capacity they could serve and weren't always compensated with the almighty dollar. Frequently, workers were paid in goods, living accommodations, raw materials, food, and other such things that weren't money. And were harder for the IRS to track. Exactly. So they had it figured out back then, long before the IRS even existed. Yes, there were vibrant, non-corporate economies that existed in between towns and settlements. In these situations, your resume was entirely based on your performance and what you had to show for the work that you had done. You couldn't just fudge it and uh, jump ahead in the line because some algo read your resume and decided that you were um, the right uh, age or whatever the hell uh, to get the job. So, for example, if you needed a town sheriff... You might just accidentally become the sheriff by rescuing someone from a mad goat or something, and then people would just be like, oh, it's the sheriff now. And they give you a little badge and a gun, and you're like, oh, or you provided your own gun, because even back then they were they were uh, in short supply. And if a town needed a trapper, you might just go out and trap some things, and then you'd just be known as the trapper. There was no online application for jobs, no interviews, no nothing. If you wanted to make it in this harsh climate during these harsh times, you had to be what the old people call scrappy. And this is why I think we have so many wild stories about the American frontier. Basically, everybody had to figure out how to actually be useful and productive or they would starve. Simple as. You couldn't just get the job and sit at your desk, you know, browsing Reddit all day and eating, you know, hard candy. Sounds you like a human actually... rights violation. I know, I know. We need to call HR right now. <laughs> call We Talk About Dead People's HR. They just send you a shot of whiskey and tell you to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Who's, so who's, when you look at whose a, turn is it to be the uh, the head of HR right now? Is it yours or mine? I don't even we it switches back and forth. I think we put pickles or Lord of History in there, and that's why we never see them anymore. <laughs> Fair enough. So when you look at a guy like Hugh Glass and you see a range of things he did throughout his life, it can be a little startling at first to the modern mind. But when you realize that just like many other settlers of this area of this era, he was just doing whatever he had to do to put food in his gob. Um 
Well, when you realize that, it becomes a lot less shocking. But still, I think a theme of this episode is going to be dynamism. It's just about how the hell do you make it work, even if there's no you know ready-made structure for you to plug yourself into. Um, so yes, back in these days when men were men and children did not exist, let alone live long enough to see Man of Steel on their 36th birthday, things were a lot less secure. Government regulations, laws, and other attempts to establish what we call civilization were in flux a lot more than we typically have the capacity to understand. And while it is easier to pretend that these uh, that certain interests had a complete monopoly over everything at all times, the reality was that there were always parallel economies, societies, foreign interests, and other related things conflicting with each other virtually all the time. And that's another theme we're going to talk about is the interests of one might call them uh, tribal sects of uh, uncivilized, uncivilized, that's such a loaded word, of yet to be westernized society. So we'll be talking a little bit about tribes and how that interacted with the uh, the trade empires. So anyway, so Hugh Glass is this just one man amidst all this chaos, and he finds himself making his way in the wild world of post-revolutionary America. He was born the son of Irish immigrants in the wild land of Pennsylvania. You may have heard of it. Uh, I don't. I don't know for sure. I feel like we've been talking about Pennsylvania a lot lately, but I don't know why. <laughs> doesn't exist. <laughs> oh yeah, it's true. I can. I can, <laughs> I can. I uh, can. I can verify that. I'm. I'm there right now. It doesn't exist. <laughs> yes. Um, and speaking of Pennsylvania, um, just as it is today, Hugh Glass's early life is the subject of much speculation and rumor. We really don't know what happens in Pennsylvania. Um, and I think I forgot to m put in his birth year in here, but he was born in 1783 in Scranton. Um, I don't know what you know about Scranton. I've never been there. I only know that the office or something was set there. I mean, it it kind of sucks, to be honest. Okay. It's it's firmly in the coal region of Pennsylvania, um, so it's a little bit depressing. Um, oh. Yeah, a lot, lot of coal, um, you know, a lot of... Lots of old-timey stuff with the Pinkertons murdering mine workers and all that kind of stuff. Ah, uh, yes. We talked about that long ago when I was still living in Austin. And that seemed like something that could happen next door. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yes, 1783. Was it 1783? Yes, 1783. Um, and as with most legendary figures, especially of the American... Uh, the American variety, you run into the problems of ahistorical embellishments, character combinations, and the ultimate failure of integrity, pop culture mythologization, which is my favorite thing on this show, especially when we deal with people who are frontiersmen. Uh, you may remember Wyatt Earp and the Hatfield and McCoy episode, and, well, this one isn't as bad as those, we'll just put it that way, but... Uh, it would be, it's worth mentioning right off the bat that yes, The Revenant starring Leonardo DiCaprio is based on the tale of Hugh Glass. And no, we won't pay it much mind. Suffice it to say that while many of the elements at play in the movie are involved in the actual account, the intent of the film, much like the Hatfields and McCoys, is to popify something that is way less salacious than the terrorist media likes to pretend. This story is much grittier and much, much more interesting, I would say, we, than the movie version. Did we see The Revenant together? No, I never saw The Revenant. I saw it with someone. Hmm. How was it? I, I don't remember. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't remember, honestly. Yeah, I, it wasn't you. It was, so, it was someone like you. 
by which I mean one <laughs> of half. my one of my few friends. Um, I was gonna say, was it a woman? <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's likely. Um, don't think that one's likely, Chief. But uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'll have to I'll have to try to remember who who I saw that with. Um, I remember the cinematography was cool. Yeah. Well, that was what everyone was talking about. That was the bear fight and the cinematography and how it was done. And who was that? Was it Aaron? Not Aronofsky. Uh, the Revenant. Let's find out who the cinematographer was just for the just for interest because Ah, Inyaritu. That was the director. But who was the cinematographer? It, this doesn't matter at all. I'm just interested now. I uh, as the old professional interest. I know. I I can't I can't get away. Dear God. Um. All right, I'm not digging through this now. But yes, um, just because a movie was made up about it and it was popified and some things were cut out, that doesn't mean the movie's bad and it doesn't even mean it's a bad representation of the story. And I wouldn't know because I didn't see it. But I will say that the story did surprise me with the number of things that were going on with it. Like the movie trailer, as far as I saw, made it look like Hugh Glass was just attacked by a bear. But I don't know if I can emphasize this enough. He was attacked by a lot more than just a bear. Was it a now, Wendigo? A, it was a Wendigo. I'm getting a call. I need to mark this. Sorry. Hello? Hey, what's up? Well, I'm recording right now, so I can't really talk. Ask him if he wants to guest star on the show. Please repeat that. You're on the air with We Talk About Dead. <laughs> Well, you're on the air right now, son. Say something. Uh, today in the meeting, I started it off by saying, or just asking everybody in the room generally, who here has gone through an entire day and then realized suddenly that their shirt has been inside out the whole time? Ouch. Did you do that? Good. Wow. Ooh, hard to come That's back from that one. The people. That's what's important. Well, thank you for your contribution. Yeah, I, uh, I hope it helps some, somebody who's listening, and uh, <laughs> you're not alone. That's all I'm going to say. Well, we're, we're, we thank you for your support. You can get help. <laughs> all right. Have, have fun recording. All right. Um, Okay, well, <laughs> thanks, Adam. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> okay. Well, that was funny. All right. He's been duly marked. Um, and with that, let's begin with the actual historical documentation instead of just me BSing about the movie. All right? So, <clears throat> the scene. Let's see here. I lost my spot. The year! was 1783, and the scene is darkest Pennsylvania. Hugh Glass is born and vanishes from the historical record for 30 years. Please mind the gap. <laughs> God, I wish that were me. <laughs> so at 30, Hugh Glass finds himself off the coast of Texas in the employ of none other than Jean Lafitte, the notorious pirate king. So you may be asking yourself, dear listener, how did we get here? And just who is Jean Lafitte? I don't know how to pronounce anything in French, so I'm just going to say John Lafitte. How about that? Is that American enough? I'll take it. 
Nice. Well, let's talk a little bit about John Lafitte. John Lafitte was a French Jewish pirate known for ba- being maybe the swashbucklingest pirate in the Gulf of Mexico. He was best known for serving with Andrew Jackson. That's in my the boy. Defense of New Orleans. Yep, <laughs> in the defense of New Orleans against the British in the War of 1812, serving up cannonballs to the bloody redcoats while swilling rum and laughing heartily. So, full-on pirate here. John Fitt was, of course, also very briefly an agent of the Spanish military in Mexico, a gig that ended with him inventing a fake nation and building a pirate colony known as Campeche. Campeche? I don't know. A Tortuga-like settlement... That peaked at 2,000 inhabitants. Uh, and actually, I believe Tortuga in the Pirates of the Caribbean was based off of, partially off of Campeche, but I can't say for sure. Either way, it was Pirate Town, Pirate City. Um, and Lafitte made his money by attacking and looting ships of all nations because he was a pirate. And it effectively made him one of the most successful pirates in the Gulf of Mexico and beyond. His pirate colony was famous for its freewheeling, dynamic style of operation and often brought in great riches in the form of precious spices, rum, and, yes, slaves. He was a wily one, often running scams and using trickery to multiply his profits. There was one such scam he frequently ran where smugglers would... I don't know exactly how it worked because I don't think like a scammer. But I believe uh, he would have his smugglers buy slaves at a discounted price, march them to Louisiana, auction them off at a higher price to a shill purchaser, and then collect half of whatever was earned in profit at the auction. I don't know exactly how it worked. Again, I don't think like a scam artist. Um, But then they would take the slaves to New Orleans and elsewhere to sell them again. And I'm really not sure how, how that worked. But again, it's because I'm not a pirate. But this is how Lafitte's operation ended in pulling, uh, ended up pulling in something like uh, $35 million annually in today's money, which is quite a lot for a working man. That's like... Which he wasn't. At least $4 an hour. I know. <laughs> uh, raise the minimum wage. Anyway, so these exquisite earnings provided a lavish lifestyle to the Pirate King and increased the number of jobs he could provide in his own black market. And by providing jobs, I mean needing more hands slash enslaving people. Because more often than not, one did not apply to be a pirate in the employ of John Lafitte. One was made to be a pirate in the employ of John Lafitte. John Lafitte's pirates found that slavery was one of the most lucrative forms of business and expanded operations to bring in as many African slaves as the illegitimate company could manage. And this may come as a surprise, but there were laws that were passed in the United States government to make the importation of slaves to any port illegal in 1818. This was done because empires and black markets don't often get along, especially when the black market is outdoing the empire and stealing all of its business. It's very, very cynical, but this is this is the world in which we live. Of course, paper and legal documents and even moral uh, exclamations did not stop the piracy or the slavery or the slave trade. And Lafitte's port at Campeche operated on its own terms and was well defended, so Jean Lafitte's piracy and slave trading continued unabated for many years despite being illegal. <laughs> they banned piracy and slavery! How is it still going on? <laughs> 
Now, Lafitte was not particular about who he was enslaving. He just liked slavery. Um, and of course, the majority of these labor slaves were of African origin, since they were tragically the easiest to acquire at the time, of course, because the African slave trade was an already existing market and was being <laughs> widely used the world over. And so Lafitte basically just exploited it as much as possible. But Lafitte's uh, sophisticated slaver philosophy had many levels. At the bottom were what we traditionally think of as slaves, manual laborers, non-native groups that could be coerced to do menial tax tasks, that sort of thing. But all the way up the chain, Lafitte never really treated anybody fairly, which is to slay, uh, which is to say that virtually everybody who was working for him was in some kind of slavery of some kind. And as we mentioned, uh, the pirate crews themselves that were running these ships were largely composed of slaves of a different level. And sometimes they were coerced by violence to join up, sometimes by crushing debts because they drank too much rum at Campeche, sometimes by addictions and the promise of more rum and other such fancy, fancy items. Either way, they would run up a bill and he would say, well, I guess you work for me for two years. Sounds, so, like, a, sounds like a community organizer. <laughs> wow, I don't... Hmm, I can't tell if that was a politically incorrect joke or not, but we'll just roll forward. <laughs> So Lafitte just really loved slavery, um, but he did run into some trouble when he also started to enslave the native populace in the Americas, which is to say tribesmen. And he was successful in many such cases, but he did once incur the wrath of the Karankawa, uh, whose tribesmen rose up against Lafitte and killed a bunch of people in his pirate colony. They, they were not having the whole slave thing. Um, of course, Lafitte doesn't understand people who don't like slavery um, because he's a pirate king. So he answered this uprising of the Karankawa, who just wanted to be left alone, by bombarding the Karankawa with cannon and mortar fire and destroying most of the tribe and their villages. So this sparked a serious hatred between the pirates and the natives, and nobody was making friends in Campeche. It made things that were already hairy with... Um, Various Native American tribes get a little bit hairier because now there were pirates trying to enslave people as opposed to just, you know, the typical conflicts you had between natives and colonizers. So Lafitte was just making matters worse by bombing people, as, you know, as is the case in most cases. But God would have the last laugh, however, when he sent a hurricane to raise Campeche to the ground, which this hurricane ended up taking down all but six houses in the colony. <laughs> so he got his eventually. Um, so thank you, God. Uh, but this divine retribution would only come after the bill had been tallied, uh, which wasn't just yet. So until then, Lafitte was allowed to run this little operation, make all his money, and make the world a much, much worse place because of his greed. So sometime during this unbelievably dark operation, Hugh Glass, our guy, became a legitimate sailor further north along the east coast of North America, and he was known for being very, very good at it. And due to circumstances about which we can only speculate, his travels landed him in the Gulf of Mexico, smack dab in the middle of Lafitte's little axis of evil. Um, in one such case, uh, which again is not well documented, but it's reported on, speculated about, Either way, uh, Lafitte and his men ended up capturing Glass's crew and forcing them to join the piracy and slaving operation in 1816. And according to Hugh Glass himself, this was one of the most miserable experiences of his life. He wanted to be a legitimate sailor. He didn't want to be a pirate. He didn't like being enslaved as a pirate. 
Um, and he really, really was not a fan of the whole, you know, human trafficking thing. Um, nonetheless, I mean, what are you going to do? You're stuck in a foreign area. You've been captured and probably, you know, beaten senseless a couple of times. So you go with it until you can find a way out. So for two years, Hugh Glass swabbed decks and sharpened cutlasses. And he participated in the black-hearted schemes of Jean Lafitte before he escaped to Galveston by diving overboard and swimming across two miles of open ocean to the shore and to freedom. Yay. Just, I know, he, he made it out. He got he got one opportunity, one shot, one opportunity, <laughs> and he didn't miss miss the chance. I don't remember the lyrics to that song. Do you remember? No, I, I know the one you're referencing, but yeah, it's... I'm too old for that. Don't do not miss this opportunity. I can't rap. It's great. Anyway, so he swam two miles across open ocean, which is pretty staggering, to be perfectly honest. I mean, and when I he couldn't. dragged, what? I couldn't do it. I know you could float across two miles. I also, of open I also, ocean. I also kind of hate being in the water. So not great. What? I also kind of hate being in the water. So yeah, not you great. You don't like water. I've what no it's not that I don't like water. I just I've I've watched too many episodes of River Monsters and seen too many weird fish that just like bite your dick off and I just I'm not about <laughs> I'm not I'm not about that. So well, Hugh Glass was <laughs> um and when he dragged his sorry wet body onto the sandy beach, he found himself still not free of the terrors of Jean Lafitte. While the danger of the pirates was a decent stretch of salt water behind, a new danger lay just ahead. For Hugh Glass had landed in none other than the shelled-out territory of the decimated and pissed-off Karankawa people. So, um, because John Lafitte had bombarded these people for not wanting to be slaves, the Karankawa were not friendly to anyone who looked like Lafitte's pirates. This basically meant white men in drenched clothing, potentially with a hilarious talking parrot wearing an eye patch roosting on their shoulder. Well, I guess I'm going to so, have to change. Yeah, there's a little bit of profiling going on here, but who can blame them? They did get bombed by, <laughs> by a Frenchman. I should not be laughing about that. Good God. So on his journey northward without maps, supplies, or weapons, which will be a theme in this episode, Hugh Glass took great pains to live off the land and avoid any other human encounters. Because As Hugh literally, Glass doing the, uh, doing the deprived run in Dark Souls. Yes, quite almost literally. Um, yes, so he was avoiding all people because basically everybody had a reason to kill him. Um, and he did successfully avoid the Karankawa, likely because most of them were straight up dead. Um, but also because there just weren't that many left. Um, and he found himself trekking into even more unfamiliar territory further inland. And there are also some reports that he had a companion who escaped with him, um, which will be important here in a moment. There were two different there were two different versions of the story, as we'll find a lot with Hugh Glass. In one version, he had a uh, traveling companion who escaped with him, and in most versions, he doesn't have a companion at all. But Glass's worries about the natives were not over. Um, while living off the land and eating grubs like Bear grills, Ha <laughs> get Bear it? Bear grills. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Hugh Glass and his alleged companion were captured by the Wolf Pawnee, which is a, a particular tribe of Pawnee natives. And initially this was a um, terrifying encounter. 
Um, Hugh Glass likely assumed that the Pawnee were essentially the same as the Karankawa and probably continued to believe this for the initial run of his capture since, you know, he was a captive. But also, his fears, according to some sources, appeared to be not ill-placed because in some accounts, Glass's unnamed companion, after being captured, was promptly tied to a stake and burned alive while the natives pierced the poor man with burning slivers of pine. Um, which was a sacrifice ritual uh, to ensure abundant crops that year. So if you can imagine that, you're like, oh, we made it away from the pirates, at last we will be free. And then you get captured and you have to watch your friend get burned alive while people poke him with burning sticks. And um, he doesn't even get a name. He just gets to be the dude who was burned alive and poked with burning sticks. That's, I know, nothing. That's truly deprived. <laughs> that is truly deprived. This is the beginning of Dark Souls 5. Um, you just get poked with burning sticks while burning alive, and then you re reincarnate, and you can have another go. But um, Yeah, so Glass was forced to watch this, and to his horror, he realized that he was being saved for the next Abundance Ritual. Um, and he basically figured this out by realizing that the Wolf Pawnee were treating him really, really all too well after killing his fellow escapee. Because it was understood that sacrifice victims were to be treated well until their deaths out of respect for their sacrifice to the gods. So, okay, yeah, fair's fair. I mean, makes yeah. sense. His friend got poked to death, and he's sitting there eating a Big Mac and being like, Thanks, guys. Uh, <laughs> this is going well. <laughs> so when the day for the next sacrifice came, Glass was approached by the Wolf Pawnee chief, who held the first pine splinter, ready to give him over to the gods. And that's when Glass reached into his shirt and produced a large packet of vermilion, which he gave to the chief with a bow. The chief was so pleased with this gift that he basically, uh, on the spot, adopted Glass as his own son and forgot about the abundance ritual. Because the chief didn't count on Glass's pocket vermilion. <laughs> so that's, that's like a, a powdered substance they use as like a dye, isn't it? Yep. A red dye. Oh, yep, I mean, it's a red dye. I guess, like, if you're if you're a Pawnee chief and you suddenly have this red dye and you can you can start really pimping it out with the red clothing, I guess that's a big deal. Well, I mean, it is worth mentioning that back then dye was very valuable. Oh um, yeah, and not just not just among natives. It was like a heavily traded good. I don't know if you know anything about the dye industry. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the back in industry. ye old ancient world. Um, the ancient city of Tyre, the whole reason it was important and prosperous for a thousand years is because it had like a monopoly on purple dye that you get out of some kind of shellfish that were in the mm -hmm. harbor of that city. Yep. Yep. And so they were literally a global, global power because of that. Yeah. So let's not, let's make no mistake. Dye isn't just like, oh, he randomly gave him some dye and because the primitive chief thought it was cool. No, it was like, it was a legitimate valuable. Um, and it, it was a it was a respectful gift, one might say. So either way, it really did it worked well because um, the chief was like, "Wow, you must be blessed by the gods to have such a such a valuable on your person." Um, so they obviously couldn't sacrifice him for mere abundance. Um, so that worked, and from then on, Glass's relations with these uh, Pawnee proved to be very very friendly. Um, they, uh, they sort of started to understand his story, and they kind of felt bad. <laughs> they were like, oh, shit, you were forced to be a pirate, uh, and then you escaped, and we killed your friend. So 
Um, they started to allow him some level of freedom within their tribe, uh, and he was very eager to learn what they had to show about, like, living in nature and off the land and stuff. Um, so they taught him all they could about wilderness living, intricacies of native politics, which when I say intricacies, I mean, like, those guys will kill us and those guys won't unless, um, they decide one day that they're going to kill us. And that's, that's about how, it, how deep it got with, uh, politics in this region. Um... And also, native politics was basically just like, okay, are we at war? Are we not at war? And, well, Hugh Glass learned about the politics of war because he did go to war alongside these Pawnee against the Kaw or the Kansa people. Um, and so, and he did it many times. And during this tribal war, Glass actually proved to be a solid fighter and ended up killing several Kansa warriors in battle. In a particularly lucrative scav round, he found a hawk and rifle which he later used to kill a grizzly bear in the field of battle. Different grizzly, by the way. Um, and was honored wait, wait, by wait, the wait. Pa- wait, you just what? said he killed a grizzly bear in the field of battle. Yes, in the field of battle. Why was, was the grizzly in- bear at the battle? Um, he was at battle with the grizzly bear. I okay, don't know what okay. you're asking. Okay, no, that's... that's <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds like they were at war and the other tribe was sending grizzly bears onto the battlefield. <laughs> Well, if I if, if Far Cry Primal is to be believed, this was a normal thing. Um, so yeah, this uh, this I, I want to mention this uh, hawk and rifle again. This was like a state of the art weapon. Um, this was you know like really it, it was a I don't know how to how to put this except that it was like this was a fancy boy rifle, um, and uh, it, it'll pop up later in the story. It becomes a bit legendary, but. So he used this this rifle to kill a bear, um, which is rather uh, prophetic, one might say. And he was honored by the wolf pawnee with the new name, and pr- please forgive my pronunciation, Takakuruk, which translates to white bear. <laughs> Good. So Good. he's white bear now, which is pretty badass, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Glass lived with these Pawnee for about five years and even got married to, uh, one of the Pawnee women in the is tribe. This, is this going to be like the infamous Romanian woman of the, the Maximov episode? I'm afraid it is, um, uh, because she never comes up again. I believe he left her there. Um, but either way, this native lifestyle seemed to suit him, or at least he got used to it. But when the Pawnee sent a delegation to St. Louis to meet... With uh, U.S. authorities, Glass chose to ride with them. And in St. Louis, Glass was given the choice to stay with the Pawnee or stay in St. Louis. And seeing a potentially brighter future that may come after rejoining his own uh, colonized society, Glass chose to stay in St. Louis and do what? Join the fur trade. Because now he was a woodsman. He knew how to handle himself out there, and he was like, time to join the fur trade. So, there's that. So this came in the form of Glass joining up with the Rocky Mountain Fur Company, which just sounds like an REI with more fur, uh, in 1822. And the Rocky Mountain Fur Company, which was founded by William Ashley, was pretty much exactly as the name suggested. But let's talk a little bit about what the fur trade actually looked like at this time. And if you have anything to offer as I'm going through this, please do, because you're more in a region where that was a a big thing. I mean, it was a region around here, or a thing around here, but uh, I don't know anything. We don't have roots in the Midwest. We just have Walmart and sadness. Terrible. I know. 
So the initial stages of the fur trade in America were relatively simple, and I'm simplifying because otherwise I'd, I'd write another 18 pages about this, but, uh, you know, we don't have a script anyway, so. The natives knew where to hunt, how to hunt, and had excellent techniques for tanning and preserving hides. They also had a long tradition of not over-hunting areas, and also not attempting to industrialize nature to collect more furs to trade for that sweet, sweet cheddar. This meant that in the beginning of the fur trade, it was largely natives selling their furs to merchants who would then act as distributors. And this became very profitable for the natives and the merchants alike. Um, but as they always seemed to do, the merchants discovered something rather convenient for them that just happened to be, you know, oh, we can't really help it, disastrously exploitative for their business partners. And this is where we delve into a very touchy topic, so I'll treat it carefully, but it's about the ugliest thing imaginable, no matter how you frame it, because... The merchants got a merch. Thank God for Teespring. We don't have a t-shirt on there anymore, I don't think. <laughs> anyway, so the fur merchants figured out the alcohol thing. And it's not fun to talk about, but it was a major problem facing natives who had no exposure to the intoxicating effects of alcohol. Basically, native tribes and populations in these territories were incredibly vulnerable to the drug because it wasn't one they were used to at the European level, you might say. Uh, while the Europeans had been drinking alcohol at greater and greater levels over the course of centuries, the native tribes of America had not. And when merchants figured out that they could use alcohol both as a uh, tradable good and a means by which to swindle the natives, they damn well used it. And the merchants made bank off this little exploit at the expense of their former partners in trade. The short version of this is that the natives basically ended up losing everything uh, over the course of several years. It was the silent weapon that destroyed many, many tribes that were as old as the land. And when you just barely peek into that topic, the this, this sheer sensation of immense loss is it, just impossible to avoid. And, of course, the government did step in a few times to try and stop this destructive practice, even going so far as to attempt to ban the sale of liquor to natives. Uh, and there were reports of... In because there were just, like, reports coming out of entire villages that used to be, like, reliable partners losing all of their men to drink, and it seemed that something had to be done. But as we know, and as we saw earlier with the whole, you know, we ban slaves thing, uh, a government ban isn't any good if it's unenforceable, especially when wily traders were essentially giving this stuff away under the table because it was just... I mean, it worked. So the bans also produced, as we learned with the slavery thing earlier, it instantly produced black markets, which of course creates more crime, so the problems just got worse and worse and worse. So for some fur merchants, the ban meant that they had to be more low-key about using alcohol to swindle the natives. But this strategy couldn't last because it turns out poisoning the resourcefulness right out of your hunters is a great way to kill the golden goose. And it is the sort of thing we expect from short-sighted, big-line-watching people who run these kinds of dishonest schemes. Other companies, however, like the Rocky Mountain Fur Company, saw that all of this meant they were going to have to do a complete reorganization and change of strategy if they were to remain in the fur trade. Um, things would have to change if they were going to keep going with this. And since this, uh, they were no longer able to rely on native hunters to do the dirty work for them, the companies began to form hunting parties to get the furs themselves. Uh, and producing furs at an industrial capacity would prove to be a very difficult challenge at this juncture because it was uncharted territory. Does all this sound about right to you? This is what I was picking up in my research. I think so. I mean, early early 19th century America is not not my wheelhouse, but uh, this, I mean, it, it sounds about right. Um, fur trapping's pretty hard. 
I've done. Yeah, I've done some and I, of it. I want. <laughs> I wanted to represent it represent it properly because the evolution of this industry, you know, it basically started out as, oh, you guys have lots of furs. Can I buy them? Yes, great. I'll go sell beaver hats in the nearest village and you know, upcharge them. And they were like, oh, now I can basically become friends with you and you'll give them to me and then I'll go sell them for an upcharge anyway. And it destroyed, it just killed the golden goose. Let's just put it that way. Um, so yeah, the industries that, or not the industry, but the companies that were forming up around this, they had to have a new strategy and they had many different attempts uh, in different ways to keep up production rates. These are, and, the spir- these are the spiritual ancestors of people who check LinkedIn every day. <laughs> yes so <laughs> one of the most effective strategies or at least one of the strategies that was initially um, well it was very difficult to begin with was the brigade rendezvous system which had young trappers going out to various fur sites collecting what they could and rendezvousing back at trapper outposts or forts to stash everything rest go back out again and eventually send a shipment back to town which could be sold for profit so is this like um, a multi-level marketing scheme where you sign up trappers under you and uh yes <laughs> and, <laughs> that's, that's, that's kind of diff- what it sounds like and then you got to meet the quota for your upline and yep and if you don't you just well in this case you just die <laughs> once you reach the silver double gold platinum level you get a slightly reduced interest rate on a wagon yeah almost exactly that <laughs> Yeah, corporations never change. So anyway, these uh, these companies had some trouble keeping up with demand because it was a new system, and the old one, of course, had worked so well, and everybody was very comfortable just bringing a barrel of booze and you know walking away with a wagon full of furs. And let's face Never it, ever, everybody wants a cool fur hat. Everybody did. Like, and they were like, totally there's a in style. huge demand for that. I know that much. Back then, oh yeah, I thought this was just like Andy Griffith era that people wanted fur hats. No, because, uh, joke. yeah, no, fur was, um, not just actual, just straight up fur hats, but fur was also how you made the nice, really high quality felt that almost all hats were made out of. So not just hats that look like fur, but things that, you know, look like cowboy hats are made out of felt, which is made out of fur. And so it's a, yeah, it's a big deal. Very valuable little industry. Um, nevertheless, after a rocky start. The Rocky Mountain Fur Company found success in its brigade rendezvous strategy. And one of these expeditions began in 1823 in St. Louis and headed up the Missouri (coughs) River to rendezvous at Fort Henry, 2,000 river miles from the point of origin. That's a long-ass way. Yes, yes it is. Uh, We're going to cover a lot of mileage in this episode. So among the trappers, Hugh Glass discovered that he was in the company of some real trapping legends, including the, well... Andrew Henry, which Fort Henry was named after, Jedediah Smith, Ed Rose, Tom Fitzpatrick, James Beckworth, William Sublet, Moses Carson, and Jim Bridger. These men were led by, not not all of them were legends, but these were names that survived the historical record. These men were led by the Rocky Mountain Fur Company's founder, William Ashley. So back then, it wasn't just like, ah, yes, go out, my trappers, and bring back some profits, chortle, chortle. Like, the, William Ashley, like, literally led the expedition at this point. Um, he didn't have the desk job just yet. Um, but Hugh Glass, like I said, was also among some very, very new trappers because the company had managed to hire some good, experienced men, but talent was being scraped up by competing traders all over St. Louis. There was sort of a 
a, uh, a a talent drought because all at once, oh, all of our natives are gone now and they they can't work because they're horribly debilitated. So they were just like, anybody with a gun, come on, we're going to go trap some beavers. So anyway, this expedition was bound to be a difficult one. What began as a simple mission for furs, as in many of these early cases, ended up becoming a complicated affair that involved a deadly tribal war. Um, because, and this is the first time we mention them, this part of the Missouri River was populated by Arikara natives. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, which was a people that had lots of problems with traders in the past. And that's traitors, not traitors. <laughs> the Arakara were known to rob, kidnap, murder, and otherwise harass traders who were passing through. I mean, we've um, all had those days. We've all had always, those days. Yeah. Every, you know, you're just going to Chick-fil-A and you just get robbed by an Arakara warrior. And then you're, you know, you're toast. He steals your honey butter chicken biscuit or whatever the hell Whataburger sells now. <sighs> anyway, so the conflict between traders and the Arakara were well known, um, but many traders were very good with negotiations. Um, in this case, there was kind of no choice. Ashley and his gang really needed horses. The Arakara had them, and they really needed to send trappers over land for this particular uh, job, and the Arakara had these horses for cheap. So they were like, all right, look, I know we have trouble in the past, but we're going to be really, really nice, and we're going to try to go and, and get some of their horses. So early in this journey, the Ashley party stopped to do trade with one particular village of Arakara natives. Uh, the village was prime beachfront property, earthen buildings surrounded by a wall of logs and dirt. Just like and home. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past you. Um, on May 30th, William Ashley and the boys arrived at the town where the Arakara were waiting, and they were not in a good mood. And of course, everybody's on, you know, in sort of very tense mode because sometimes they traded, sometimes they fought, sometimes they just kidnapped and killed each other. But this time they really needed horses and the Arakara really wanted to trade. So, but the, uh, these, this little group of, uh, Arakara were not happy because a bunch of their warriors had recently gotten killed by other white men with guns in a battle between them and another fur company. And no matter how William Ashley negotiated with them, explaining that they weren't from the same fur company, the Arakara would not deal with them unless some kind of recompense was paid for the lost warriors. William Ashley, knowing that these horses were absolutely necessary for this expedition to be of any use at all, presented peace offerings to them to show that he and his party meant no harm. Unfortunately, this was not taken correctly. The Arakara interpreted this as a full acceptance of responsibility for the actions of the other fur traders. Um, so while trade negotiations were now open, they were rocky, and the white men the natives were trading with were essentially now self-admitted enemies of the Arikara, Arikara, whatever. Um, you know, you would think, oh, look, we're not the bad guys. Look, we gave you a present. And they're like, ah, thank you for paying for, you know, the men that your people killed. <laughs> so it's uh, lost in translation, one might say. So not off to a good start. This is it's all like they always say, you know, never sign anything without your lawyer present. That's right. Um, especially when there's life on the line. <laughs> so, of course, the main thing that the Ashley party had to trade with was guns. Uh, Ashley traded 25 muskets and a good supply of ammunition for 19 horses, which, from the reading I did, seemed like a pretty solid deal back then. Unfortunately, when Ashley tried to trade with anything other than guns, trade stopped abruptly. So they didn't want any booze, they didn't want any, you know, victuals or any valuables. They wanted weapons. 
Well, I'm, so I'm, they... as, I'm associating with these people more and more by the minute. I know. <laughs> They're trading with you. Um, so then some things happened during this trade deal that are kind of fuzzy. Um, that night, as many of the trappers camped ashore and William Ashley was asleep in the cabin of his riverboat, three Arakara warriors climbed aboard and tried to break into the cabin... Ashley, who presumably slept with both eyes open, leapt from his cot, drew a pistol, and chased the warriors away. But as soon as he got up, he realized that the chaos was only beginning. Edward Rose, one of the trappers along for the journey, ran up screaming that a trapper had been murdered in the village. And indeed, one man was missing, and the Ashley party uh, had to make a crucial choice. So are you telling me, are you telling me that this was in fact... The worst trade deal in the history of trade deals? Maybe ever, yes. Maybe uh, ever? <laughs> I actually wrote that joke in later. <laughs> so, way to, be, uh, way to be on point there. So they had to choose whether or not they were going to flee in the dead of night um, or dig in and wait until morning. Um, of course, some of the men wanted to flee, but many others wanted to stick around to attempt to recover the body of the murdered trapper, which, you know, who can blame them? And Hugh Glass was among them. He was like, we need to stick around and get this this guy's body back so we can give him a proper burial. Um, and sometime during the night, one Arakara warrior came down and offered to bring the trapper's body out of the village in exchange for a horse, a price which William Ashley gladly paid because he wanted the body back. Well, the native took the horse, went into the village, and then came back with no horse and no body and said that the trapper's body was so badly disassembled that he couldn't bring it down to them. God, the the word disassembled there is really yeah. uh I don't I don't like that. I don't yeah, like that. That's the nicest word I could come up with. <laughs> he was not in good shape. Um in fact he was kind of not a shape anymore. <laughs> um so yes, again, here's the joke. This was the worst trade deal of any trade deal maybe ever. <laughs> um so before anything could happen with the body negotiations, the trappers saw Arakara warriors mounting the log wall and loading their brand new rifles. Um, so, not good. They traded for the rifles and now they're going to get shot. And moments later, before anyone could really react, musket balls were raining down on the trappers and the horses. As the horses went down, the men went down beside them for cover. The trappers called for help from the river boats, but one boat was stuck in a sandbar, and the oarsman on the other one had been shot. And while all this uh, was going on, warriors stormed down to the beach and started killing the confused trappers. Um, the survivors that managed to get out of this chaos fled downriver, shooting back at their pursuers as they went. Hugh Glass ended up killing one of the, the raiders, but also got shot in the leg for his trouble. Um... And after this, after escaping, Glass was tasked with writing a letter to the father of one of the victims of this attack, which I have included below. I don't know. Would you like to read this? I can, I can read it. Ah, uh, yes. Please go ahead. <clears throat> Dear sir, my painful duty it is to tell you of the death of your son, which befell at the hands of the Indians 2nd of June in the early morning. He lived little while after he was shot and asked me to inform you of his sad fate. We brought him to the ship when he soon died. Mr. Smith, young man of our company, made powerful prayer which moved us all greatly, and I am persuaded that John died in peace. His body we buried with others near this camp, and marked the grave with a log. His things we will send to you. The savages are greatly treacherous, 
We traded with them as friends, but after great storm of rain and thunder, they came at us before light and many were hurt. I myself was shot in the leg. Master Ashley is bound to stay in these parts till the traitors are rightly punished. And I'm assuming this is your obedient servant, but my god, that is abbreviated. <laughs> Y-R-O-B-T-S-V-T. Your obedient yeah. <laughs> Your obedient servant. Hugh Glass. <laughs> yeah, I forgot to mention there was a huge storm, which is why the men camped on the beach. Um, and as soon as it was over, that was when the attack took place. It was like... Well, now we're all waterlogged and sad, so I guess we're perfect victims for a for a raid. So William Ashley sent a messenger back to St. Louis to warn of the attack, because other fur traders were about to head that way, to which Colonel Henry Leavenworth of Fort Atkinson responded by sending 240 troops back up the river to put down the Arikara. Because the Arakara had been a threat in the area for long enough, and now it had earned the honor of being the first tribe west of the Mississippi to have U.S. Army soldiers deployed against it. Woo, Arakara number one. <laughs> so these troops, these American troops, were backed by volunteers from various fur companies who were really pissed off, had lost friends in this, you know, to these people. And 500 Lakota horsemen, who were also fed up with their bullshit, um, and this was called the Missouri Legion, uh, and it meant business. So now you've got roughly a thousand people going to this village to, you know, tear it all down. Sort of. Um, Leavenworth, despite the demands of his officers and foot soldiers for the complete destruction of the Arakara, made peace with the tribe and the village and its inhabitants were not destroyed. The Lakota who joined up were really not happy about this. They were like, we were going to kill them. Like, what's, what gives? <laughs> so they just, like, walk off the site. They're like, fuck this. They abandoned the expedition immediately. The Arakara themselves left the village within a day as part of the deal that Leavenworth had made with them. And uh, they were going to take over the village, but it was later burned down by two trappers who wanted revenge for the deaths inflicted on their parties. So they were just basically two two guys who stayed behind and just burned it all the hell down. <laughs> so the Ashley party was not in good shape after this. These distractions from actual furring had been extremely costly and a new plan had to be formed. Ashley divided his party with Glass joining Andrew Henry and 14 others to go overland to Fort Henry where they felt they'd have better success and Ashley's company attempting a new route overland to the Rockies. Um, they were just basically trying to avoid the river altogether because it was just, you know... Am ambush Central. Yeah, Ambush Central, not good. So Andrew Henry with Hugh Glass and his party had this mission to go secure Fort Henry, um, which was, of course, named after him because he built it. Fort Henry was sheltering several trappers in hostile Blackfoot territory and needed to be secured before winter. And the goal from there was to establish new trade routes and furring sites that did not involve the river at all. It's uh, a bold strategy, again, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off. <laughs> Yes, they're 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 still figuring out how to move forward with their industry, even though um, it's just rife with danger. Um, so on this journey, Andrew Henry began to notice that Glass, in particular, was displaying some unusual behavior. He liked to walk alone, away from the party, and also liked to camp alone. Ah, man after my own heart. Right. Now, Henry didn't like this, and he saw it as more of a danger to Glass than anyone else, but he didn't ask Glass to stop doing it. 
Um, probably because Glass looked like he'd seen some shit, but also because Glass was hired on as the party hunter, so he was frequently out sort of scouting around for small game to cook for dinner that night. Um, so, you know, but the camping alone was a little bit, meh, I don't know about that, but going out around ahead of the party or behind the party or whatever to look for game was part of his job. So on this road, Glass's party was infrequently attacked by Blackfoot warriors, usually in the dead of night. Uh, and two men ended up being killed because of these attacks. And I just want the audience to try to imagine how scary that would be. You're sleeping in hostile territory and dudes are getting domed at, you know, random by snipers hiding in the dark. And you're doing it all for beaver pelts and cheddar. So how's I mean, that heck, for it's, hazardous it's, working it's, conditions? You know, it's better than doing it for, uh, you know, oil and defense contractors. Uh, well, simpler times. Simpler times. It made sense. You could at least hold a beaver pelt. Not just a sheet of paper and you can't hold of... bi- you can't hold big line. This is true. You can't hold big line. <laughs> can't make a hat out of big line. You can't make. A... <laughs> <laughs> so as summer was coming to a close in the September of 1823, the Henry party was making good progress up the Grand River Valley. Glass, being a game hunter, like I said, was always on the lookout for the next meal. And in this part, in this case, he was up ahead of the party, rustling up some varmints. And while he was searching a riverbed, he made the deadly mistake of becoming best friends with a female grizzly bear who saw him as an imminent threat to her two cubs. Now, if you know anything about bears, you know that they like good, long, cuddly hugs, especially when you when they see you playing with their cubs. They just, they love that. <laughs> Which, uh, which uh, Hugh Glass was uh, allegedly doing, according to the court case filed by Mama Bear. Um, yeah, I mean, but they're, this... they're, they're basically big, just big old doggos. Big old doggos. Yeah, that's all they are, Reddit. Um, please go just play with cubs. Heckin' pupperino. Yep, we need to encourage Redditors to go play with the, with the, with the bear cubs. <laughs> I don't want poor uh, and... innocent bears being exposed to that. <laughs> So the mama bear, filled with love and goodwill, charged Hugh Glass with an affectionate roar. (laughs) And Glass, a man of the mountains and therefore unpossessed of any feelings of goodwill at all, um, allegedly blasted the Care Bear with his 54 Hawken rifle. But the creature's love was too great, and the charge continued. And as the grizzly tackled this heartless man in a loving embrace, Glass drew his hunting knife and began the fight. In the distance, the rest of the party heard Glass screaming and set out to find out just what the hell was going on. And they crashed through the brush looking for the source of the terror. And according to some reports, they discovered Glass in a state of victory, having killed love forever by stabbing the grizzly to death. In other reports, the party arrived and assisted Glass in finishing the job. Either way, the bear was dead, and so it seemed was glass, or at least he would be very, very soon. So it was basically like Romeo and Juliet or something. Exactly. (laughs) Glass had suffered major wounds from this outpouring of goodwill from the grizzly community. Um, In fact, he looked so bad that the party estimated that he wouldn't last for more than two days tops. I've heard that before. I know. Mercifully, they produced a litter and attempted to pull glass along in their um, uh, to the destination of Fort Henry. But the party's pace was so slowed by this that they were really in twice the danger of being attacked by Blackfeet and losing the entire party. So again, they had to make a very difficult choice. 
Convinced that glass was basically done for, Andrew Henry asked for volunteers to stay with him until he died, bury him properly, and complete the journey to the fort later. And when no one seemed eager to take up this grim task for fear of being isolated in hostile territory, Henry offered an $80 bonus to whoever decided to stay. Two men, John Fitzgerald and Jim Bridger, took up this offer. Fitzgerald was an older and much more experienced woodsman than Bridger, uh, because Bridger was only 19 at that time and was fairly new to this level of excitement. Um, the two expected to stay with Glass for about two days until he succumbed to his wounds, bury him, etc., and then join up later. Unfortunately for Fitzgerald and Bridger, Glass wouldn't die. <laughs> Uh, he just kept on trucking. Um, and the longer that these two stayed with Glass, the more the danger increased. And if you're wondering why they might consider abandoning Glass as they did on the fifth day of waiting, just go out in the woods some night and stand alone in the dark for five minutes and see how scary that is. Now add a heaving, bleeding, mauled up, dying man groaning in agony nearby. The risk of predators attracted by the smell of carnage and hostile, forest-dwelling ninjas that want to kill you. Just add all that to the equation and see if you can do it for five days. Um, you would think about leaving, too. <laughs> I don't know if I'd last 20 minutes. Yeah, I, I think I can see where they're coming from. I think yeah. I think I can see that. Because, um, yeah, yeah. I've, 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 I've spent nights alone in the forest before, and my god, it's... Everything is terrifying when you're in complete darkness in a forest alone. Like, everything mm -hmm. is scary. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, just imagine, like, the sound of a hollow from Dark Souls nearby. Ooh, all night. Oh, God. I couldn't do that. Um, so the two men in charge of Glass abandoned their duty of giving Glass a Christian burial, and they dragged his litter to the side of a flowing stream, where they left him after gathering up his hawk and rifle, knife, tomahawk, fire-making kit, and other items, allegedly to ship back to his next of kin. Because Glass was pretty much un completely unresponsive at this point, it probably felt like the sensible thing to do, and while there is a logic to it, these men were in fact honor-bound to watch this man until his death and bury him properly. This abandonment of their task, while understandable to us modern-day pansies, would have been well known to them to be completely dishonorable and likely a terrible, terrible sin. Uh, betrayal of the highest order. But again, the danger was very high, so we understand the, the risk of sticking around. So they had to weigh their options here. So the two men, likely overwrought with conflicting emotions of guilty consciences and fear of what horrors might uh, the woods might produce if they stuck around, decided to leave glass there beside the stream, stripped of all equipment and presumed dead. The only thing left for, they left for him besides the clothes on his back was a bearskin uh, draped over his struggling body as a burial shroud. Which just sucks. <laughs> uh, good day to you, Mr. Glass. Good day. They just lay the burial shroud over him. He's like, wait, wait, I can still do it. And they're like, we can see your ribs. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, this is it's, it's, rough. it's not a great situation for anyone. No, no, no. So Glass laid beside the stream, barely conscious, it, probably not even completely aware of what was going on until it was until they were already gone. I mean, you um, know what it sounds like he needs? An entire what? month's supply of meth. Like our, <laughs> like our boy Imo Koivinen. Yes, he could use that or at least one white monster. Um, we don't know how long he laid there, but we do know that at some point 
He had the sudden realization that he had been abandoned by his comrades, and he was now all alone, freezing, bleeding, and dying in the woods. And running out of and zin he... pouches. What? Running out of zin pouches. And completely out of zin pouches. <laughs> but he was not having it. Gathering all his strength, Glass, after having been mauled by a bear five days earlier, crawled off his litter and away from the flowing spring. Using his instincts as a survivalist, he got his bearings somehow and dragged his broken body in the general direction of the Missouri River. Um, his goal was to reach Fort Kiowa, procure healing and new equipment, and set out after the men who had abandoned him. This was a good plan, except there was one major problem, and that problem was that Fort Kiowa was nearly 300 miles from the site of the bear attack. And to give you an understanding of what kind of shit Glass was now up against, just realize that he had multiple festering lacerations all over his body, a broken leg, and cuts on his back that were so deep, his actual ribs were visibly exposed to the elements. And now he had hundreds of miles to cover in hostile territory. So, you know, pretty bad. <laughs> Before setting out on this perilous journey, Glass set his broken leg, wrapped himself in his bearskin, and made sure there was an ample supply of maggots on his wounds to prevent, prevent, to prevent them from becoming gangrenous. Oh, he, uh, is, he is a man of science. I was, yeah, he they, literally they, made sure. They still do that. They still do that. You can literally order medical-grade maggots. Yep. Well, that's what he was doing. He had maggots all over him while he's crawling through the forest, so... Pretty bad. Um, our Boomer listeners might recognize these factors as being very similar to the difficulties they faced walking to and from school back in the day. But our Millennial and Zoomer listeners will have no, conce uh, no, no concept of how hard this actually was. So to explain it to our younger audience, I'll just say this mortal struggle was kind of like playing Fortnite mobile with a sticky smartphone screen while spinning fidget spinners in both hands, being grounded from TikTok for two hours, and banned from OnlyFans for asking for too many feet pics. It was that bad, Zoomers. I'm sorry. <laughs> It may I'm even sorry. have been worse than beating Dark Souls with a Guitar Hero controller. May God, I don't know if it was that bad. Jeez. Exaggeration much? Anyway. So Glass pushed on regardless because he was no pansy. He did not live in the pod, but he did in fact eat the bugs to keep his strength up. Anything he could find, in fact, in the way of nourishment crawling along the ground was fair game to him. This included the aforementioned bugs, any berries or roots he could find, and animal carcasses. Which, I mean, you gotta do what you gotta do to get through freshman year, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm telling tell, if, if we dug up Hugh Glass and uh, test, tested his remains, we would find no soy at all. None. None. None at all. In fact, he was crawling through the woods and he found a whole bottle of soy milk and he didn't even touch it. In fact, he poured it out and spat on it, so... <laughs> So anyway, on one point on this journey, Glass came across a pack of wolves feasting on a buffalo calf. Um, <coughs> thankfully, the wolves had no interest in him, and when they had their fill, he moved in on the corpse, ate as much as he could, and dragged the remains along with him for later. <laughs> Basically a, a sack lunch. Um, so as he carried on this terrible journey day after day, he felt some of his strength returning despite his absolute exhaustion from, you know, all this shit. And despite it all, he only got stronger and stronger. And at one point, he was actually able to get up and make a crutch, which he used to cover ground much more quickly, even though he was still in terrible agony. Um, 
And now, we really have no choice but to blow through what probably felt like the longest stretch of time uh, Hugh Glass had ever experienced. But the fact is, uh, it was a long, long journey that was weeks in the making. And after dragging himself a large distance, limping along a little further with a crutch, and suffering the whole time, he finally started to catch some breaks. So firstly, weeks after the bear attack, he managed to rediscover the burned-out remains of that same Arakara village along the Missouri River which was a huge landmark in this journey. I mean, can you imagine after such an ordeal you come across this thing that must seem like it happened a million years ago? It's like op opening uh, uh, opening an elevator and finding yourself back at Firelink Shrine. Exactly. That's exactly right. Uh, at the uh, village, he actually managed to find a cache of corn, which he packed away for his completion of his journey. And while in this settlement, he d was actually also discovered by some roaming Sioux, um, some of the warriors who had been involved in the battle with the Arakara earlier that year, uh, and who recognized him as a member of the Ashley party. They put him on a horse and took him some, I think, a three days journey back to their village, where they cared for him until he was able to uh, rest by a bonfire, bonfire and refill his Estus flask. So, the Dark Souls references are off the chain this episode, but I don't oh, care. Oh, well, I, didn't even, I did not even see that there was a Dark Souls reference in the not script when I made my Dark Souls reference. Wow. I know. It's, Early America is just Dark Souls. I was going to say either that or it's just 2020 is Dark Souls. Well, we know that for a fact already. <laughs> um, now scarred by the bear, but definitely on track for a near-complete mend... Uh, Glass refocused his aims, and two weeks later, he was walking into Fort Kiowa like Aragorn returning from the warg attack. Now, we don't know if the people who had, uh, if the people there had any idea about what had happened to him. It's probable that they hadn't had any word from the Henry expedition. Uh, but they definitely did recognize him as a member of the former Ashley party. Um, so using his company credit... Glass resupplied himself with weapons, equipment, and consumables, and set his eyes northward once again. He joined a party, a new party of trappers led by a man, uh, by a man named uh, Toussaint Chabonneux. I don't know how to pronounce French. Does that sound decent to you, Mister Linguist? Um, I can never remember about the initial CHs, but it's definitely Arbano. So like. It's either uh, Charbonneau or Carbonneau, and I'm not sure which. Well, it's the only first and only time you have failed me in this regard, so... Um, <laughs> still 10 for 10, in my opinion. So anyway, um, with, uh, with this, this uh, man, presumably from The Witcher 3, they he once again set out into the wilderness, only... Not, uh, uh, no, three... I got it. It's, it's Charbonneau, because I just remembered the, the cathedral is, is uh, Chart. Cathedral that starts with uh -huh. a uh, CH. So yeah, Charbonneau. Nice. What an unfortunate name for a cathedral. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, I know. I know. <laughs> so anyway, um, he, uh, Glass and this new party, they, they were only at Fort Kiowa for three days before they set out again. And it was only a few days into the journey that none other than those pesky Arakara showed up again and killed the entire party of trappers except for Toussaint and Glass. Thankfully, this, they managed... This seems to be a theme. Yeah, they're not doing so hot. Like, at, at this point, it's like open warfare with this particular little group. Um, and thankfully, the uh, Toussaint and Glass managed to escape the assault with the help of some Mandan Indians... 
um, who recognized Glass as the man who just could not be killed by the murderous Arakara tribesmen. And they'd also heard stories of this legendary white bear in their travels and recognized Glass as being the very man. So they were a little bit starstruck. Um, so after acquiring his autograph, the uh, Mandans pretty much begged him to stick around for a while and tell tales of his journeys and adventures. And Glass gladly agreed and enjoyed their hospitality, probably for too long because winter was coming. Um, nevertheless, by November, the Mandans insisted Glass on the next leg of his journey, which would lead him to Fort Tilton, which would eventually lead him to Fort Henry, where Glass suspected Fitzgerald and Bridger, the men who had abandoned him, were hiding out for the winter. And oh yes, he's beginning to catch up with them, and he hasn't forgiven or forgotten. I mean, how could you? Let's let's be honest. <laughs> Five does, agonizing does days in the woods. Like, you-, you know, one of those things that's kind of a uh, formational. Yeah. Five days in the woods, you hang on with all your might, and then they're just like, well, he's still gonna die. And you're like, I've done five days now! And they're, no, he's gonna die. Take his rifle. (laughs) So when Glass arrived at Fort Tilton, he learned a few things. First, not only was he becoming kind of a legend among the tribes that were not friends with the Arakara, he was becoming something of a boogeyman among the Arakara. Which is why William Tilton of the Columbia Fur Company, who of course owned Tilton Fort, wanted Glass to leave as quickly as he'd arrived. I'm ki- I'm kind of guessing that of that category, tribes who are not friends with the Arakara, there are probably a lot, aren't there? There are a lot. I'm, I'm kind of guessing they weren't the most popular, just based on what we've seen so far. They they seem like they uh, probably had a few enemies. Yeah, they were kind of loose cannons, as at least in this story, as far as I know. Um, I, I obviously didn't do a full research run on them, but just in this story, they, they kind of play the the bad guys for the most part. Um, because it seemed like uh, relations, at least in this trade, were initially friendly. Um, but there's just some groups, uh, or particularly this group in the story, which seems to have always been like untrustworthy and a little bit, uh, a little bit. Well, dangerous. yeah, I mean, the, the fact that you had those, like, what was it, five hundred. Uh, Lakota, who are just signing up and want to burn everything and kill everyone, like, right off the bat. That that seems to hint that they didn't have the greatest relations with their neighbors. And, uh, they were disappointed that the uh, fur traders didn't burn down the village, so... They're mad at them for pussying out. They're probably saying something like, guys, we've been dealing with these guys for ages and they always, always come back. Just burn the village. And, you know, the traders in the army were like, but they said they'd be nice. And the Lakota are like, they always say they'll be nice. Um, so anyway, uh, William Tilton wanted uh, Glass to leave the fort as quickly as he'd arrived. Um, because now the Arakara had it out for Glass in particular, and if word got out that the legendary White Bear was at this fort, they might try an all-out assault, which wouldn't be good because, you know, forts aren't... We we think of forts as being, like, massive and well-defended, and in this area, they're basically just safe houses, and by that I mean log buildings with, you know, a wall. Um, a a large enough assault force, particularly, of this, this tribe would be, um you know, not easy to defend against. And also it's not fire. Like they had... Yeah, also fire. They don't, they don't ha- they don't, it's not like they have, you know, stone walls and stuff, so things can right. be set on fire pretty easily, I think. Yeah. 
Nonetheless, uh, Tilton assisted Glass in once again resupplying him for the next part of his journey, but quickly ushered him out the door toward Fort Henry. Alone, Glass traveled on foot through snow and ice, living once again off his wits and what harsh Mother Nature provided. Along his path, he slept in snow caves and trudged through blizzards with no navigational equipment outside of his own GPS-like mind. And at long last, after nearly a month of travel in these conditions, all alone in the snow, he arrived at Fort Henry. Which was abandoned. <laughs> yeah, Ouch. so after a month, there's nothing there. Um, so sifting through the hollowed out building, looking for clues, Glass discovered a note painted on the wall. Allegedly, some reports say that he basically figured out that they'd left and figured out where they went. But some people say that there was a note or speculate that there was a note. Some historians do. Um, either way, he figured out somehow that the Henry party had relocated further upstream to the mouth of the Bighorn River. This meant spending the rest of December once again trudging through freezing cold and snow. Um, but he did arrive nonetheless at the new fort on New Year's Eve, 1823. Um, and when Glass announced himself at the fort, nobody could really believe it was him. Everyone, of course, thought he was dead. I mean, these were his old compatriots. They'd gone to Fort Henry and then moved further north to set up another one. It was a long time ago that they left him in the woods. Um... And they were all like, holy crap, he's still alive. And so they have all these questions, and he answers all of them. And he's like, yeah, you know, I crawled 300 miles through the, you know, through hostile territory and the freezing cold to get to a fort. Um, but after all of this tale-telling and, and memory reliving, Glass asked a question of his own. Would you like to read the question? I would absolutely love to read. The question. <clears throat> Do you want a specific voice for this, or? Yeah, the one you just used with the, the like really rough mountain man voice. Where are Fitzgerald and Bridger? It was the only question he asked. He, they're like, "How'd you do it?" He's like, "I don't know. Survived. What'd you eat? Bugs." <laughs> Hugh Glass was <laughs> like, "I'm just built different. <laughs> built tough. He's the brawny man." Anyway, so, accordingly, Bridger, when, it, when asked for, meekly produced himself, knowing that he was in for it. Um, he apologized profusely for what had happened, and even though Glass was clearly not happy with this young man, Glass relented, accepting that it was mostly his own fault for getting attacked by the bear. Wandering around and being a loner might have been Glass's style, but he readily admitted that it was a haughty way of traversing such dangerous territory. Um, he did make it clear to the young man that he knew he was inexperienced and was just listening to his older compatriot, Fitzgerald, and was not to be blamed as harshly as Fitzgerald. So Glass forgave Bridger and let him off the hook, but he did not forgive Fitzgerald. But Fitzgerald was not at the fort, at this new Fort Henry, Glass would soon learn. Uh, Fitzgerald had actually gone on and joined the military and was stationed at another fort, uh, Fort Atkinson. And to make matters worse, he had never attempted to forward Glass's possessions, including his prized hawk and rifle. Um, back to Glass's next of kin. Uh, so that was... Not cool. Not cool. Not a, not a cool move. Not a pro-gamer move. Um, nonetheless, at this time, everyone was so pleased with Glass for having forgiven Bridger that they invited him to stay at the fort to celebrate New Year's, and Andrew Henry asked him to rejoin the trapping party and winter together at Fort Henry to which Glass agreed. 
In the spring, uh, Henry determined that he needed to update the Ashley party on the state of things at Fort Henry. The Ashley party would, of course, not be aware of Glass's story, but also of, he would not be aware of the increased hostilities of the Arakara in the area. Five men would be chosen to go meet with the Ashley party at none other than Fort Atkinson, where Fitzgerald was. So Glass readily volunteered. He was just, like, on the horse already. He's like, I'll go. Send me. And they're like, okay, you know, if you want to. And he's like, no, I'll go. Let's go right now. <laughs> so this small group of five set out overland in the late February of 1824. And they crossed many rivers while they were still largely slowed or frozen in places by the cold until they found their way to the North Platte River, at which time they constructed boats from buffalo hides and floated along the river toward Fort Atkinson. And on their journey at the fork between the North Platte and Laramie River, they encountered what appeared to be a friendly group of Pawnee. Good, the chief good. stepped... Yeah, I know. So the chief stepped out on the shore and invited the trappers ashore to parlay, um, speaking Pawnee, which, of course, Glass recognized. So Glass was like, all right, guys, it's safe. Um, we can go in here and talk to these guys. Um, they may be able to offer guidance, supplies, etc., um, or even just news of the area. So they went ashore, and they left all their weapons in their boats as a sign of goodwill, because walking up with guns, you know, sends the wrong kind of message. And the men began to associate with the Pawnee. But that's when Glass overheard one of the natives nearby speaking a language that was not Pawnee, but Arakaran. Uh-oh. Yeah. Realizing that this was now no longer a friendly situation, despite the smiles and cordial attitudes of their hosts, Glass waited for an opportunity to warn his fellow trappers and escape. And at the first sign that the Arakara had their guard down, Glass and his men bolted back to the river. Gunfire immediately broke out and took out two of his fellow trappers. Glass then ran for some nearby hills and hid out for a time, while the two other survivors made it to the river and continued on to Fort Atkinson. Um, I believe one of them had only one of them had a boat and the other walked along the shore. Um, they all believe, the two of them believe that uh, Glass was doomed again to die at the hands of the Arakara. But they had forgotten the one law of nature that the Arakara didn't have the right to kill Hugh Glass. <laughs> I mean, apparently nothing could kill Hugh Glass. <laughs> yeah. Um, nothing stops the white bear, allegedly. So the two survivors reached Fort, Fort Atkinson with no further delays, but Hugh Glass was now once again alone in the wild with no rifle, no map, no compass. And at this point, this is Glass's sort of mode of being, one might say. And we have another quote here that I'd like you to read. Although I had lost my rifle and all my plunder, I felt quite rich when I found my knife, flint and steel, and my shot pouch. These little fixins make a man feel right pert when he is three or four hundred miles from anybody or any place. He's an easy man to please. <laughs> Knife, flint and steel, and a useless shot pouch. Very nice. It's it's the little fixins in life, man. Yep, makes the heart feel right pert. So Glass once again headed overland back to Fort Kiowa from whence he came. But it was a relatively pleasant journey, mainly because it didn't happen after a bear attack in the winter. He found that the prairie was, much to his delight, filled with young buffalo, which made for excellent hunting, and Glass ate fresh veal all the way back to Kiowa. <laughs> Pretty nice. It must have been like a vacation for him, honestly. Wait, he did they, arrive. Do at, they call buffalo meat veal? Uh, that's what it said in the source. So, oh, I, guess so, so. I guess they must call young buffalo veal like they do young cows. 
Mm-hmm. Guess so. Learn something new every day. That is what it said on the... What was the source I pulled from here? I even left it open so I could go and look at it. Yeah, the, the article of the uh, story of Hugh Glass on the Museum of the Mountain Man uh, well, website. I, man, if the, if the Museum of the Mountain Man says it, like, I'll sign it. Like, I'm, I'm here for that. Yeah, they have a whole page on Grizzlies. Um, uh, it's... It, the, the headline on the page is Unforgettable Man, Hugh Glass. Pretty hardcore, I will say. Definitely. Um, yeah. But, uh, where was I? Let's see here. Yes, so Fresh Veal. He arrived at Fort Kiowa once again in excellent health and made ready to make a direct journey to Fort Atkinson with none of that extra party BS. He's going straight there all alone. <laughs> So after one more overland journey to Fort Atkinson, this guy just does not stop traveling. Uh, he's just out there all day long. Hugh Glass finally arrived on its doorstep in the June of 1824, and he immediately met with the commanding officer of the army there and demanded to see John Fitzgerald. The officer informed Glass that unfortunately, now that Fitzgerald was a soldier in the U.S. Army, he was now government property and no longer a private citizen. <laughs> So that's nice. Um, therefore, allowing Glass to even, to even, well, to get even with Fitzgerald was impossible. At least while he was government property in the army. The government's always getting in the way of things. I know. Can't, always can't in the way let of a man things. take care of business. Exactly. Nonetheless, it does seem that Glass did end up meeting with Fitzgerald and did have words with him. The end of this was that Fitzgerald... Oh my gosh. <sighs> Excuse me. The end of this was that Fitzgerald was forced to give back Glass's prized hawk and rifle, and Glass warned Fitzgerald to never leave the army or he'd have his head. <laughs> so, never quite, never quite quit on that one, but he got his rifle back, so all is well. And that's sort of the end of the, uh, the revenge story of Hugh Glass. He didn't get revenge, but he did, he did sort of close it up, so to speak. Uh, so after this, after having settled these affairs uh, sufficiently, Glass went back to privately trapping in the Rocky Mountains. And during his new adventures, he would be wounded with an arrow, and he would travel 700 miles before he could find someone to remove the arrowhead. <laughs> I mean, that's that's nothing for this dude. Exactly. I mean, he did get mauled by a bear and then crawl 250 miles or whatever, but he would continue to live as a full-time badass trapper for nearly 10 profitable years. Until he and another party he joined uh, were once more attacked by the Arakara on the Yellowstone River. During this attack, Glass disappeared once again, much like his last encounter with them. And a few days later, one of the trappers who survived the encounter captured several Arakara and found them in possession of several pieces of Glass's equipment, including his legendary Hawken rifle. This trapper demanded an explanation for this, but the Arakara could not account for these fancy items, and they would not really openly admit that they had killed the white bear at last. Knowing that the Arakara had at least been responsible for the deaths of three of his compatriots, um, and now also probably guilty of the murder of Hugh Glass, the trapper had them promptly scalped and burned alive in retaliation. Well, that's... that's one way. Yeah, that's one way of handling that, but that that is the last we see of Hugh Glass in the historical record. He just sort of vanished in the midst of battle. Um, 
Some say Hugh survived and continued his trapper's life in the Rockies until he at last merged with the mountains and became spirit amongst the ranges. Others say his soul now rests with that great beaver skin in the sky. But all will say that Hugh Glass was truly a legend of, among men and a fine example of what it looks like to keep going no matter how tough the going gets to getting. Uh, my my new conspiracy theory is that Hugh Glass is in fact still alive. Yes. And I'm, I'm going to find him in the mountains. He's there. He's waiting for me. I can feel it. He's just meditating on top of a mountain with a raccoon skin hat. <sighs> Excuse me. Wow, Wait a... for you to arrive. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I wasn't expecting the, the abrupt departure of Hugh Glass after all that. Just sort of... But, you know, I guess sort of the, my the mystery is kind of the only way someone like Hugh Glass could go, because... Like, somebody like that can't just have, like, a normal, oh, yeah, and then on this date at this time he died. He's yep. got to just kind of disappear. You know what they say, old trappers never die. They just fade away <laughs> into the mountains uh, to rejoin with that great beaver skin in the sky. Yeah, I didn't like that his story ended so abruptly. All the sources I was pulling from, and, you know, I didn't, I didn't do a ton of research on the end of his life because... Um, Frankly, the, the meat of the story is in the bear attack and his career, uh, pirate career and the uh, survivalist elements. But I do know that there's really not much after he disappears from party records and letter writing and things like that. When he started working alone, it's just like, oh, yeah, he's just out there doing his thing. Um, but admittedly, this is an amateur history podcast, so I'm sure there's some Hugh Glass expert out there tearing their hair out going... He, we have an exact count of the number of beaver pelts he sold in this town. Ah, but I don't, I don't, you know. Hey, I'm no professional, so there you go. Did you have anything you'd like to comment on before we wrap up and head to the surface? Um, I can't think of anything specifically. Just, yeah, what a, what a story. What a story. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think a lot of, a lot of people sort of, forget that the the frontier was like a constantly moving thing and that because we think of you know the west and where all the you know crazy western stuff happens being you know over on the other side of the rockies that's where we sort of think of you know the 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 cowboy legend and all that but the frontier was always moving and so at this time you know the early 19th century the frontier is you know now in places which we don't really think of as being oh yeah that's literally the other side of the world but you know at this time you know Missouri is the frontier pretty much. Yeah, it's uh it's the new world and it's it's something we don't really think about because you know, I mean this was I mean it was it was well known obviously there were people living there America was a thing but like, you know, just huge swaths of land that had no claim uh well not no claim but you know, no territorial claim specifically. You just had like you know, tribal claims and things like that. Just this open land where, and you never knew what you were going to get, you know, like you could be dealing with the Sioux or with the Arakara and there's also grizzly bears out there. I mean, it, it took, it took some stern stuff to settle, to settle America. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, I, I started with the whole, like, oh, it's not like, oh, you just go get a job. It's like, you have to actually be useful. You know, you have to be good at what you do decently. Um, in order to find enough work to survive. And even then you have no guarantees at all. You know, there's no health insurance at the Rocky mountain fur company. Right. Um, it's uh it's a very different 
dynamic from, you know, what we sort of all expect out of modern life, which is just sort of guaranteed security, you know, a job that's 40 hours a week, yada, 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 you know, sort of like we, we expect to sort of settle comfortably into something. And, you know, it's not gotta, easy work, but got to get the know. 401k and that's right. Yeah. But back then it was just like, ah, oh, you get bear skins until you get murdered <laughs> or beaver skins until you get murdered. Um, simpler time. Yeah, simpler, definitely more mortal time. I don't think uh, Hugh Glass was afraid of death after that. Let's put it that way. Um, but yeah, I love that he had a legendary rifle too. That was like state of the art. It's like a like a space bounty hunter with his special laser. You know, I wonder if he named it. I don't know. Probably did. I would but, have. Oh, I would have. <laughs> but yeah, so that's the story of Hugh Glass, the the man, the myth, the legend. Ah, well, thank you for that. I, uh, I'm enlightened. Obviously, a lot of that was not in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really worked hard on this episode, too. Like, it was a long time coming and a lot of work. Because, um, you know, piecing together these stories from, like, letters and various historical societies and things, that just takes, it takes a lot of time. So I'm, I'm really glad it turned out, even though it was, we were a bit long. But sometimes people like that. So, anyway. Uh, who, could, who could grow tired of our mellifluous voices? <laughs> Mellifluous. <laughs> it means what does that they, mean? it means they flow like honey. <laughs> okay, mellifluous it is. Shall we head to the surface? We shall. We shall. So, Aaron, if you had to organize a brigade rendezvous system, how would you arrange it, and what resource would y'all be gathering? Uh, well, in the modern day, uh, I would organize it um, with a Facebook event, and of course, the only people who respond to Facebook events are um, sad, lonely people, and <laughs> people who still use Facebook and shop at Walmart. <laughs> So I would assume that the resource we we would be gathering would be something like, oh, I don't know, paper products. Um, we would probably raid, um, probably raid Walmart for paper products. And then we our, our rendezvous would probably also be at a trailer park somewhere here in the Midwest. Does that sound good to you? How would, what, if you had to organize a brigade rendezvous system, how would you arrange it? And what resource would you be gathering? Well, I mean, I feel like it's basically what I do when I play Escape from Tarkov in a squad, and we're usually just gathering, like, <laughs> wires and toilet paper and cigarettes and stuff, um, and then try not to get lit up by angry hobos with AKs on our way out. So, I mean, I think it's basically going to be the same thing as, as Hugh Glass and the Fur Traders. Well, I mean, that just sounds like going to Staples, honestly, you know. But I don't know if they sell... uh they sell toilet paper there but they will soon <laughs> maybe anything's toilet paper if you're brave enough well i mean staples has lots of paper and i'm thinking if there's a shortage again people never forget about staples they might have you covered <laughs> well i think it's time to bring the show to an end for today if you hate us you're probably right so consider funding the show by becoming a patron on patreon.com uh, Patreon is not your thing. You can always drop us a little tip in Venmo. Our handle is at WTADP. Thank you again to all of our patrons who stay with us and continue to help us provide quality content. I ran out of podcasts again this week. 
Um, because it seems like everybody stopped making them, and I don't know why, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, we're glad to have you along for the ride. Any kind of support you can show, sharing the show, uh, telling your friends, giving us a subscription or a rating, or even just interacting with us on Patreon. <laughs> Sending us beaver skins. Send us beaver skins. Um, yes, that, that would be good, too. We'll have to get a P.O. box for that, though. Um, we'll have a contest. Whoever sends us the best beaver skin gets ambushed by Arakara Indians. <laughs> what a deal! Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sound of misunderstood Care Bears play you out. stuck inside the house on a rainy day? Well, we found out that there's a little beast that causes this. His name is and he came to visit us one day. Aha! Carolot! A veritable hive of activity. But I'll soon change that because I'm Please don't ask me why. I love to f and my rewards an apathetic sigh. <laughs>